morning everyone. Happy Monday and welcome to the News Agenda with me, Fleet Street Fox. And today I'm joined by the Mirror's political editor, Pippa Crera. Morning, Pippa. Morning. Hi, Susie. Now, this is the People's Pay-Per-View, so get into the comments, ask us your questions. Uh, the best ones do get the News Agenda mug, which I've already drunk my tea out of because we're a bit late this morning. So what have we got? Well, the Mirror has splashed on a photograph of Ukrainian dad, Ruslan Gladki, kissing goodbye to his nine-year-old son, Hade, as he sends his family out of the country while he returns home to fight. And it's got to be said, that level of determination has stopped Putin's invasion of Ukraine almost in its tracks. In four days, he still hasn't taken a single city, touch wood. Um, the Ukrainian leader is still at large and a hit squad sent to take him out has reportedly been stopped with uh, extreme prejudice, I suppose we'd call it. And like any strong man who's looking weaker by the day, Putin has now ordered his nuclear forces to be at a state of heightened readiness. Now, Pippa, there are some people talking about this as the threat of nuclear war and others saying he would never do that to Ukraine because of the importance of that country to Russia as, as well as the rest of the world. So what are you hearing from Westminster about how they're reading this escalation in, in his rhetoric? Well, I think rhetoric is the key word at the moment. I mean, the, um, the, the, the big problem, the big issue with Vladimir Putin is that so much of what he says and does is unpredictable. And because of that, we've his comments about uh, putting his his deterrent forces, including of course the units which run his nuclear his nuclear arms, um, on high alert, has sparked alarm across global capitals. But it's worth remembering a couple of things. One of which is that uh, a lot of it, uh, as we've seen from Vladimir Putin throughout, particularly in the last few weeks, a lot of what he says doesn't actually add up to the truth. And Jen Pulaski, the uh, White House spokesperson, was saying just this yesterday, that a lot of it is just rhetoric, it's bluster, it's threats, it's designed to freak us out uh, successfully, as it uh, you know often is the case. And the second thing is that um, he is a, a very paranoid individual about um, what NATO's intentions are on uh, his, east, his western border with the Baltic states, Poland and the, and the former Soviet countries, and particularly in Ukraine. And um, he will be very concerned that um, the NATO, which is obviously and the EU, has stepped up the defensive response in terms of supporting Ukraine itself, but also putting NATO troops in um, NATO members on Russia's western flank. Um, he will be very concerned that they he regards that as an escalation. So he's trying that it's a sort of retaliation in terms of that as well. I think at the moment, the Western officials and security officials that we speak to at Westminster um, don't think that we're on the brink of, of, of World War Three, despite the sort of caveat about what I say about his unpredictability. Um, and the thought, sort of weapons that he has put on high alert, the troops in charge of the weapons he put on high alert, are um, a sort of thermonuclear, um, their bombs, they basically would be dropped on, um, on a sort of a, a small area in Ukraine. And what they do is they suck oxygen out of the air and sort of, you know, cause devastation in the, in the immediate wake. They're so not thermobaric weapons rather than the nuclear ones. Right, thermobaric, yeah. And so they're not your your Hiroshima or your Nagasaki style drop something which obliterates everything. That's not to say that you know they're anything other than devastating, but I think it's important that what he was talking about there, what he's threatening by implication by putting his forces on high alert, um, is not suddenly nuking nuking every Western city. 
No. Uh, so these thermobaric weapons, they operate with, it's a similar in a way to a thermonuclear weapon because there's two explosions. So Hiroshima and Nagasaki was one big explosion which irradiated a lot of things. Thermonuclear bombs are when you blow up an atom bomb to make a thermonuclear bomb, which is boom, boom, a really big one, which covers a bigger area and more devastating. And these thermobaric ones, they're not nuclear, they don't have radioactive isotopes within them, but they have very um, highly flammable gases. So the first explosion, the missile comes in, explodes, that releases an aerosol, which then explodes again, and it creates a massive pressure blast wave, which is what you can get from nuclear weapons, and that will liquefy your internal organs. It will do huge damage to a city centre. They're going to be devastating in an urban environment if they were used, but they wouldn't have the, the long-lasting radioactive effects that you can get from nuclear weapons. But they're still not nice. Now, Sarah Dodd says, Morning, Sarah. As Boris Johnson continues to aid Ukraine, will he come up with a plan for the nuclear threats? Does he have one, Pippa? Well, I think the nuclear threats are being taken in the round and are being seen very much as a sign of sort of desperation from Putin. For the first time this morning, there's very, very um, small glimmer of hope from some Western officials who are suggesting that um, because we're four days, well, now it's day five, obviously, of the conflict. And as Susie, as you've said, not one major Ukrainian city has yet been taken. Ukrainian forces are clearly putting up more of a fight than Putin expected. He expected to a sort of a shock and awe, getting straight in, straight to Kyiv, taking it. He thought that Zelensky and, and President Zelensky of Ukraine and his and his um, and his top team would would flee the country as predecessors have done um, in the past. And on every level, he's been wrong. There's been more resistance from Ukrainian people. There's been more resistance from Ukrainian forces. They've managed to hold them off, the Russian forces off, and the Russian forces have sustained a uh, degree of casualties. Zelensky has stayed put and not just done, not just stayed put, but has put up a very um, robust um, defence on social media and elsewhere, encouraging his people to, um, to stand firm. And um, it's not yet turning out the way Putin would like. Now, the, obviously, the big concern um, is that because he's not getting what he wants right now, he steps up the um, the, the level of attack. And, and both Ben Wallace, the Defence Secretary this morning, and Liz Trust, the Foreign Secretary yesterday, warned that he could start to use alternative me uh, uh, weapons, that he um, could possibly, we could see much more of the, the sort of strikes that we saw, for example, the airstrikes in Syria, um, or strikes on, on urban areas, much more direct strikes with um, missiles and so on in urban areas, which would, of course, inflict much wider casualties. Um, so that's that's the fear. But, um, but then, you know, there is that glimmer of hope that because it's not going the way he wants, we have these talks later on the Belarusian-Ukrainian border between the summer Zelensky's officials and some Russian officials. Um, I don't think anyone's particularly hopeful that they're going to strike an agreement, but they do offer a glimmer of hope of a potential route out to de-escalation, which, of course, is what everybody wants. Of course, that would be nice, wouldn't it? So there are some some good signs. Like you were saying, Pippa, there are some talks going on uh, in um, in Ukraine today. Uh, there are some also good signs in that some Russian banks have finally been banned from using the SWIFT banking system, where Russia gets about half of its foreign-raised funds. And BP is finally dumping its 20% of stock in the Russian gas giant Rosneft. Um, get into the comments. Let us know. Ask us your questions. What else do you think uh, people should be doing? Uh, Sam Green says there, do you have advice for people whose children are terrified? Um, if they're terrified, Sam... Uh, 
it depends on the level of terror, I suppose. I mean, just speaking as a parent, if they're just concerned and asking questions and they're a bit worried, that's not what I would call terrified. That's something that we can explain and understand, help them understand. Um, but if they're terrified, as in can't get out of bed in the morning, then um, I, I think there's probably other things going on in the household that that need to calm down as well. Uh, I don't know, Pippa, we can't really parent other people's children for them, can we? No, but I do think it's, I mean, I've also got kids who've also been asking lots of questions and we sometimes make the mistake of having the radio on all the time in the kitchen and, um, you know, the news on in the background and, and sort of just- Journalism, isn't it? You have you them to be able to filter it out, but of course they listen. And I mean, Susie, you remember, we're, we're not dissimilar ages. I remember growing up under the sort of the threat of, of you know, nuclear oblivion. And you remember those, those yeah. um, that BBC program, BBC a film about Sheffield during nuclear strike, there's others as well. And they certainly put the fear of God into me. And I think really it's important to actually just to strip that away that degree of terror from children. I think if they are afraid and worried about what's going on, I think the best thing you can do is sit down with them calmly and explain and try and rationalise what's happening. And, and, you know, explain that it's highly unlikely highly highly unlikely that um you know we'll end up in a situation where western cities are being bombed that it's that this is currently a contained threat in the region and nato is very conscious of that and that's why british troops aren't on the ground because of the nato response depending on what age they are obviously they'll have different levels of understanding and actually there's a huge number of resources out there i mean bbc news rounds and the bbc website i'd say would be my first port of call for information for children my kids subscribe to the week magazine i think they explain these things in a very sensitive but not patronizing way um in a way in sort of a way that children can understand and which sort of takes out the, the sort of sense of unknown which i think is ultimately what scares kids and replaces it with sort of very sort of sober sensible uh realistic appraisal appraisal of what's going on Oh, someone actually rang me. Probably offered me to offer clean my oven. Uh, now, uh, can you keep asking us your questions? Let us know what's going on and uh, what you think uh, is happening there. It's a very difficult way to explain to a child, of course, what is nuclear war, because there's not many rational ways to discuss that. Now, Leanne Kirk says, Putin's own generals are looking bemused by his orders on this high alert. Is there a possibility his own government will overthrow him or at least abandon him? Like you're saying, Pippa, he's miscalculated all the way along. He's even managed to upset Sweden who are probably the most staid people on the planet, who've actually started arming uh, the Ukrainian resistance now. Is there any sense, we do keep hearing suggestions of this, but no real good clues. Is there any sense that the internal politics in Russia would be such that he wouldn't be allowed anywhere near a big red so, button? So I think what's really interesting about this is that, um, I mean, we saw it ourselves with that really bizarre sort of cabinet meeting he did um, that he televised before the invasion where he got all his his, his intelligence chiefs, military chiefs stand up and answer questions. And it felt very orchestrated. And you could see, regard, nevertheless, that there was a couple of them that were really feeling quite awkward about the whole situation. And from what we can make out from the free Russian media, there's not much of it around, but Norvete Gazeta and others, that there there is some internal dissent. The difference between internal dissent though, and actually they're either saying anything privately or saying anything publicly, or ultimately trying to depose Putin is, is huge. And I think it, you know, I don't think we're anywhere near that point yet. And it's worth remembering that Putin actually has been an incredibly popular leader in Russia. His approval ratings at the time of the Crimea, Crimea invasion were about 90%. And that's primarily because he's brought a lot of stability to a country which has had an incredibly rocky modern recent past. And um, and people appreciate that. People just want to be able to get on the light with their lives and have sort of, you know, fairly decent access to public services and the economy fairly stable. And Putin 
um, regardless of his international reputation, has done that at home. And then on his international reputation, the country's international reputation, he is fiercely nationalistic and has kind of reinstated a sort of feeling of national pride that I think for a long time wasn't there after the fall of the Soviet Union in Russia. And so for a long time, his popularity has been incredibly high. His popularity ratings this morning are down to 70%. Now, most Western leaders would you know, grab that with two hands and be delighted with that. But actually, approval ratings in a country like Russia, if they drop below 70% for a leader, it start to get into dangerous territory. And so I think we need, to, we need to keep an eye on what happens with protests that we've already seen on the streets of Moscow and other big, big Russian cities. Um, and, and I think the, the impact of the economic sanctions, which are just starting to come in, will be felt from today. We've already seen pictures of, uh, I think some of them were unverified, but pictures of bank runs and people queuing to get their money out. The stock market has plummeted uh, today to be shored up by the central bank, but that itself is not being supported internationally in the way that it once was. And I think the economic impact um, in Russia will be felt quite soon. And that will probably um, stir up public unrest even beyond the the, the um, protests that are which already exists and if you get to the point where there's where there's widespread protest in russian cities about the invasion where putin's approval ratings are slumped low by russian standards then either you know he himself will see that he needs to act and try and de-escalate the situation or the people around him will see that the situation isn't sustainable um, and we'll try and convince him of that. Um, I think we're some way off him being toppled, but um, there are sort of you know powerful individuals, Lavrov and others, within his clique. Um, he, he relies heavily. There's a very symbiotic relationship with with the hundred Russian billionaire oligarchs who are all going to be targeted by these sanctions. Um, and if they put pressure on him as well, then we might see a situation where actually the, this is the more peaceful route approach for the West, not suddenly sort of weighing in militarily, despite supporting the Ukrainians, produces produces the results that we're after. Yeah. Now, um, there is also the the possibility, of course, that he's he's considered he's bought the loyalty of his inner circle. But if you have to buy them, then they're not loyal, are they? Um, now, there have been some protests sort of worldwide, pretty much. Um, and there is this discussion about um, the, when, when we're going to let migrants in. And Leslie Ann Brewster there, morning, Leslie, says, when will Ukrainian refugees be allowed into the UK? Is that why the talk at Westminster is not of war, but of conflict? The nations around Ukraine have opened their doors. There's about half a million Ukrainians have have uh, fled the country so far, more expected. But there are calls for us to do the same, like Leslie Ann there, and, and we're not quite, are we? So why, what has Boris done and, and why isn't he doing more? Well, as you rightly say, there's about half a million Ukrainians that have already uh, fled the country and the EU is preparing itself for uh, an influx of millions of people really trying to get out should the, should the situation in Ukraine continue and the military uh, conflict escalate. Um, and it, it was quite a, I was working yesterday, so I was covering these things very, very closely. And there was a really um, very generous offer from the EU states agreed unanimously um, to allow any Ukrainian into the European Union um, with, the, with the proviso that they, that they do not have to apply for asylum for the first three years here. So basically, come first and worry about it later, um, which is an incredibly generous offer. And I was talking to people in Whitehall yesterday who were suggesting that what we would do in the first instance would be to offer any Ukrainians here to be able to have their wider family, so their elderly parents, their siblings and so on, to come over to the UK. Um, and then, of course, we got this announcement yesterday when Boris Johnson went to the 
the uh, Ukrainian Catholic Cathedral um, at the same time. And then he, he was delivering this um, speech which mentioned the parable of the Good Samaritan and basically saying how Britain needs to step up and help its neighbour. And at the same time, the government announced effectively that the asylum process would be, uh, the refugee process would be process that's already in place, which is that people's immediate family, so if you're an adult, your children, if you're a child, your parents um, and spouses um, can come over, which is some way short of, of what I was told earlier in the day might come and then also what other countries are doing. Um, the suggestion this morning seems to be that uh, we will hear more in coming days about, um, about what Britain can do to welcome refugees. I get the feeling that uh, they weren't able, for whatever reason, to get together that broader family support package yesterday, and we'll hear more of that. But there will also be pressure on the Prime Minister because of what countries um, in, in Europe are doing, the rest of Europe are doing, to do more ourselves. And of course, lots of people will want to stay in the region so that they can get back to the Ukraine quickly when, when the temperature subsides, but some won't. Some will want to come and join families here. And there's been some quite surprising voices in the Conservative Party and on the right saying we should just open our doors, we should do the right thing and let people, if they want that support and help and to be with families or just want to come here, we should we should um, permit them to do so. Well, we seem to be significantly nicer to white refugees than brown ones, don't we? Just going to leave that there. Now, there have been these protests worldwide, uh, including in Russia, against the invasion. Our colleague Kevin Maguire says Putin is doomed to fail and it's now a matter of time before he's tumbled. Although, of course, that does carry with it a risk that he'll make a chemical, biological or nuclear mess on his way down. He does have the world's biggest biological warfare stockpile. Um, but on pages 10 and 11, there's a fascinating profile today in the mirror of Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky whose name we've all started learning, uh, a former winner of the 2006 Ukrainian version of Strictly Come Dancing, an actor and a comedian who only last week was being criticised uh, for failing to fulfil all his domestic promises of, of tackling corruption. Uh, and this week uh, is leading his country's resistance, is providing the focus for um, his country and the leadership needed. He's sending out selfie videos in front of Kiev landmarks to show he's in the capital, not running away. Um, so he's like he's like a comedian turned leader, Pippa, but he's doing well at it. He's like the anti-Boris, isn't he? Who's sort of gone the other way. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because when um, when he first, when Zelensky first came to power in the Ukraine, um, he was he had many he had many sort of skeptics, really, internationally that people, uh, world leaders and people sort of in the foreign affairs arena thought he was a bit of a lightweight and because of his because of his professional past and that he was very unlike the sort of, you know, the really big hard man Eastern European leader that we've we've kind of male leader that we've that we've become used to. Um, and um, he has absolutely proved his detractors wrong. And one of his previous roles was um, he played uh, the Ukrainian president for six years in a popular in a popular um, series in Ukraine, and uh, obviously sort of acted the part well. And I think one of the reasons why his uh, PR campaign, if I can call it that, has been so successful, uh, the information war is maybe a better way of putting it, has been so successful is because he understands, probably by virtue of his professional past, what the public expect of a leader. And so turning up in camo gear for press conferences and, um, you know, making sort of stirring statements to, um, to, to bolster uh, and encourage and reassure his people 
um, is very effective leadership. And if you combine with that with with the sort of you know the resistance that we're seeing on the ground and the pressure that he's putting on Western leaders and Western organizations, and the fact that he's not just putting pressure on a whole variety of leaders, but he's then telling the world about it in his press conferences, on his Twitter feed, um, on his Instagram. The Mirror Front page was on his Instagram the other day. Um, you know, he's very he's very savvy in that regard. And I think part of that is because he's not a career politician and he realizes what makes people tick. So, um, you know, if he can combine that with with sort of effective leadership of his troops and and, uh, you know, response to the Russian invasion, then actually he's a very potent force. Yes, well, we should have to see how that all falls out, won't we? Now, keep asking us your questions. What do you think about the situation in Ukraine? How do you think it's going to fall out? Louise says, do you think Putin is bluffing or should we actually start taking him seriously? Uh, everyone thought he was bluffing before they rolled the tanks in, um, and then he did roll the tanks in, and now we're being told he's bluffing about these thermobaric weapons. Um, and I, my suspicion, just from knowing how bullies operate over the years, and he that's all he is, is he's a bully but with big guns, is that when he is forced to back down, he will find a way to lash out when he backs down. So I would expect him to, to blow something bad up on his way out of Ukraine, probably. Ree says we should listen to his warnings, but how do we prepare? Should we prepare? Luckily, it's contained in Ukraine at the moment, um, but there is going to be a need, I'm sure, for cleaning up something when, when it's all over and when it's finished. And that's, I think we need to have a, perhaps we need to have a government that's prepared to actually, well, the one good thing that we've got here, Pippa, before we move on to the next story, is that um, Putin thought the whole world was like, you know, in, fractured in pieces. Uh, that the EU was rudderless and falling apart, that Britain had left that and was now weak, and the US is run by a sort of senile old man. And actually what's happened is when he's rolled the tanks in, everyone has coalesced. They are now singing from the same song sheet. They are, you know, people are cooperating across international borders and statesmen and parties and politics uh, and doing what needs to be done. They seem to have pulled together. So I suppose I'm I'm saying that, we have, it would seem at least temporarily, the right kind of coalition of the willing to to fix this when it does need fixing, when it needs cleaning up, when he's gone. Yeah, and that's reassuring, isn't it? Because Putin's strategy throughout has been divide and rule. And you see that both in his approach to Ukraine over the years, but also his approach to the West. And he absolutely expected the West to be divided and to be fighting over this. And actually, not only is the West incredibly unified but within the west as we've seen in our own country the opposition has very much been in support of, of um, the prime minister and his actions on, on this um so putin is not um you know his hopes of of sort of of um, more division have not come to pass and i think if the west can continue to remain as united as it has despite the sort of difficult nature of many of these decisions um then you know i think he's he's going to be putin's inevitably going to be on the back foot yeah. Now, Kelly Louise says, will it become World War Three? That's how it looks. I'm scared what he says he does. Uh, the Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace, said at the weekend World War Three would last about an hour. So I don't think that's happening. I think if everything is correct, Kelly Louise, that we're hearing at the moment coming out of Russia and how people are reading it, Putin is currently at the stage of Hitler in the bunker in downfall, slowly falling to pieces. So I think he's not in a position to go and fight a long five year war after that. He's falling apart anyway. 
keep asking us your questions. Uh, get into the comments. Let us know what you think. Uh, we do have something else to talk about now. And we can't have Pippa on the show without referring to Partygate, which still rumbles on, even though Boris Johnson is doing his international statesman bit at the moment. So, Pippa, what's changed? The last we heard, Boris and Rishi both had questionnaires to fill in. What's the latest? Is he going to get a fine? And will he resign if he does? Well, what's really interesting is that there's been throughout, uh, as a result of the Ukraine situation, and we know we're just talking about how the opposition and the government have been working together on it, there's very much been a ceasefire on Partygate as well. And um, it's, uh, I think it's a holding situation rather than an impermanence. I mean, I speak to Conservative MPs all the time who tell me that um, they are still reserving judgment on the Prime Minister, depending on whether or not he gets a fine, is found to have broken the law, when the police eventually conclude their investigation at some point in the next few weeks. And then the second danger point for him is, of course, is the full publication of the Sue Gray inquiry. I mean, the, the summary we saw was pretty damning. But if the detail shows that he may have misled Parliament, then that's another dis that's another dangerous situation for him as well. Um, I have no doubts that he'll try whatever means to wriggle out of both of them. Some Tory MPs are reassured by the changes that he's made in his top team, but feel that it's time they need time to bed down. And they're also reassured by his response to the Ukraine crisis, which has been a sober, serious, grown-up one. Although there are sort of, of course, outstanding issues like how generous we are in our in our response to refugees. So um, I wouldn't say it's definitely not over. He's definitely not out of the woods, um, but he has got some breathing space, um, albeit to concentrate on incredibly serious global issues. Um, and I think we have to wait and see what happens when the police comes back, because um, at that point, if he's trying to have broken the law, none of the polls yet uh, reflect any of the changes that he's made in, at the top of, of, of number 10, or indeed his response to the Ukraine crisis. They all are pretty miserable for the Conservatives, they, they show that he is he that Boris Johnson is pulling down the Conservative brand, and the older voters, a sort of a key uh, Tory demographic, are, are moving away from the Conservatives. Not necessarily yet to Labour, but are moving away from the Conservative Party. Um, if that situation persists by the time the police come back, then it wouldn't surprise me at all if there was enough Conservative MPs to try and trigger a no confidence vote. Whether he loses that, of course, is an entirely different matter. Um, and he may well hang on, but number 10 are desperate to avoid a vote in the first place because that in itself is very damaging to his authority. Exactly. Well, we'll have to wait and see, won't we? I think the thing we need to watch out for is whether or not Pippa Carrera puts her forces on the state of heightened alert. And then we all need to sort of hunker down and see what happens next. Now, um, thank you for explaining that, Pippa. Uh, we keep asking us your questions. Get into the comments. What do you think about the situation in Ukraine? What do you think about uh, Boris Johnson and how he's handling Ukraine compared to what you thought about him in the middle of Partygate? Do you have a better opinion of him now? Do you still think he needs to resign? Let us know. Now, first of all, we'll wrap on some of those questions at the end. But first of all, there is some good news in the world. And here it is. Now, about eight years ago, I was in the sewer of Whitehall, quite literally, Pippa, uh, because I went down to see for myself the Fatberg, which was at the time the size of several double-decker buses and was blocking these Victorian pipes under London. Here's a little clip of what happened down there. There's a Glade sense spray canister thing, a lighter, uh, a plastic end to a helium balloon, a packet of smints. There are no smints left in there, we did look. A, what appears to be working in completely whole uh, light bulb, and yet another canister. Now, Dave, what's the what's the really bad stuff? What kind of crap do you really get down here? Well, you know, um, obviously the everyday items, you know, 
baby wipes, you know, wipes. You know, people think these are wet wipes, people think they're flushable, but they're not, you know, they don't break down. Well, if Timber picked that up, you know, imagine an everyday sewer, and it's usually only about 100 happy meal. Well, it's like that's that's a more acid solidified with food, fat. It's a condom, you know, wet white, yeah, let's see. Um, it all congeals oh, and solidifies. <laughs> and that's never going to go down a main sewer, no. down your street. And that would just cause someone flooding like we do, did the last 7,000 people that we have recently. So this is the major cause of flooding. And this is just fat and bits of food, is it? It looks yeah, like, fat, oh, oh, I've got a bit in my eye. Oh, yeah. oh God. It's in my eye. Lovely. Stuff. I'm so glad that's eight years ago and not not now. I've got a bit in my eye, Pippa. Um, now those wet. The thing is, those wet wipes. All that fat had coalesced around these wet wipes, which had been in the sewer for months. And when we tried to tear them, you know, they just wouldn't tear because they're made with woven plastic fibres. And so today, the story, the point of this, uh, they don't break down at all like paper. And finally, Tesco has said it will ban wet wipes with plastic fibres in them, which will save the planet. Thank you, Tesco. Will save the planet a lot of unnecessary trouble. Every wet wipe that's ever wiped any arse will exist for at least another 500 years, if not to the end of time. So thank goodness they're being banned somewhere at last, Pippa. Yeah, absolutely. And Tesco is, of course, one of the biggest supermarkets. And you've got to hope that um, if they lead, others will follow. Uh, and not just, obviously, the supermarket-owned brands, but also the the individual manufacturers. So we reach a point where there are no uncompostable, whatever the word is, non-decomposable wet wipes. So that the next time you go down the sewers, Susie, you won't have to... <laughs> yeah, you might have to cope with the smell, but you won't have to cope with being pinged in the eye. But more seriously, yeah. the sewage, sewage as, as the... Um, the uh, official in your, the man in your clip mentioned, so that this, the sewers don't get blocked, therefore causing worse flooding. They don't go out into the oceans, causing real damage uh, and in death in many cases for wildlife. Um, you know, it, it might seem like a small step from Tesco, but it's a really important one. And I think, you know, we do definitely all applaud them and hope that the other, others follow suit. Yes, and we, we're worth pointing out, if anyone out there buys a pack of wet wipes and it says they're flushable, they're flushable, they're not decomposable. Whereas if you put some paper down the toilet, by the time the flush has taken it around the U-bend, it's disintegrated, it's gone. That's what Dave told me at the time. All right, so never use wet wipes and throw them down the toilet. Dispose of them properly. They have to go into landfill, not recycling. We can't do anything with them. Try to buy the ones made of bamboo and stuff like that. For the love of Pete, because they're going to kill us all. And having been down there, I scrubbed myself with wire wool afterwards, Pippa. It was just... <laughs> but somehow fun as well. I don't know why. Something weird about journalism wanting to be in the circle. That's where we're quite happy in a strange way, um, picking through other people's stuff. Anyway, thank you for joining us, Pippa. Uh, thank you, everyone, for taking part. I don't think we've got any questions much to wrap on. So we'll have to say goodbye for now. Uh, and we will see you all again on Wednesday for another edition of the News Agenda. Thanks for taking part, everyone. Bye-bye.